All right, this is the triumphal entry. That's where we are. Um, it's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, John is the briefest version, and so we will turn our attention to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, there are a few pieces of information in John 12, and we will conclude the sermon in John. But let's get a little bit fuller account of the story. So Lazarus has been raised from the dead. They've had this uh, meal at uh, the house there, which we looked at Mary and her value of the Lord Jesus Christ last week. All of those things have happened. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke doesn't necessarily tell you this, um, but John does. And John alludes to the fact that the reason the crowds are so large that a company come in singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the reason the crowds are so large is because everybody's still testifying that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, if there's somebody that can raise someone from the dead who's been dead four days, it will draw a crowd. And so uh, all of these people, and then you combine that thought with like um, there is a government-sanctioned event that if anybody sees Jesus, let us know where we can arrest him and kill him. So you've got a death threat, you've got a resurrection account, uh, everybody's stirred up, and so all of this uh, creates, as John Bunyan would say, a hubbub in the city. So everybody's stirred up. All right, so I just want to make that connection for you. Look in your text, Matthew 21. Let me read the account, and then we will uh, deal with this passage this morning. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Beth Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went, they did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. The whole city was stirred up. This is what they're asking. Who is this? And the crowd is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, last week, we saw the value that Mary placed upon Jesus. I'd like to just preach that sermon again. Uh, we need to hear it again. But we saw the value uh, that Mary placed upon Jesus. And that she did not do what she did to get something. 
It wasn't at the beginning of John 11, like she would get Jesus to heal Lazarus. It wasn't at the funeral that she could get Jesus to raise him from the dead. But it was after the whole event was over that she gives a year's worth of wages in this ointment to anoint Jesus. This is a $50,000 sacrifice to Jesus because of what he had already done. And so she's just doing it out of value, love, appreciation, and honor. Nothing about self here. It was all giving. Well, the triumphal entry, which comes next in John, the triumphal entry is the opposite of Mary. How so? Well, this crowd is stirred up into a frenzied expectation. They're cheering. They're following. They're watching with the expectation that he might do something for them. He might come and deliver us from Roman oppression. He might set up a new kingdom in which this will happen and that will happen. So all of their devotion is for what he might do. Mary's was because of what he had already done. And you'll see, when the expectation is not met, then we'll discard Jesus and have nothing more to do with him. And as a matter of fact, these same people would even be willing to say, Crucify! Crucify! What about Hosanna? Well, you didn't meet my expectations. We're done here. Well, so you see the opposite of the motive here. Well, the scene before us this morning comes, in a sense, without preparation. It's like we're here, we're hiding, we go off over here, we're at this house, and then boom, everything changes and the whole city is shaken. In one swooping moment, everyone is excited about Jesus. Personally, I just kind of wish that'd continue. (laughs) And everybody would just be caught up in excitement about Christ. Now, just for geographical information, the Mount of Olives is a rounded ridge to the northeast of Jerusalem. At its highest point, 2,600 feet above uh, elevation, above the uh, sea level, 2,600 feet. About 300 feet above the hill on which the temple was built. So he's up here very high and able to oversee all of this. And it's from this panoramic panoramic view of the city that he sends out two of his disciples to fetch this colt of a donkey for him to ride to town on. Now, the Son of God takes center stage to be crucified. To be crucified. That's why he's revealing himself publicly. This is not like he doesn't know what's going to happen. This is an an individual choice here. This is... Now, verses 1 through 3 of Matthew reveal to us things about Christ. The primary thing that it reveals is that he is omniscient. Just think about the logical factors. All I'm doing for you is helping you to see that even in his humanity, he still has full deity and he knows everything. Perfect knowledge in verse 1. His earthly ministry is drawn to a close. He already knows this. He knows the days are numbered. He knows the cross looms before him. His hour is coming when he must finish the work that has been predetermined for him to do. He knew that the final step on his journey was to offer himself as a substitute. To lay himself down upon a tree. 
he knows that time has now approached. He knew that the whole world needed to be aware that he's in town. He doesn't sneak in. He doesn't hide behind the corner. When he comes to town, everybody knows he's in town. <laughs> if we compare this to a passage in uh, the book of Acts, something that Paul did when he's talking about these things, there's a little phrase in the book of Acts, and he, I think, is referring to this. So let me give you a quote that alludes to this. The atoning blood of the Lamb of God was about to be shed. That's what's about to happen. This deed was not to be done in a corner. Not to be done in a corner. This is the most public event that has ever taken place. So when people start wondering about whether Jesus died or not, look, the entire city knows he died on that tree. Nobody around that cross that he goes to is going, oh, maybe he didn't die. Nobody has that thought. If you interviewed every individual there, nobody's saying, well, he's probably just passed out. Nobody thinks this. It's very public, very out in the open, and everyone sees him die there. Acts 26, 26 is where that phrase came from. Paul says, I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped your notice, Festus. None of your, hadn't escaped your notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Now, that's verse 1 of Matthew, just giving you the omniscience of Christ. Then in verse 2, you get a providential command. Go. It's clear. Pretty easy to follow. Go. I'm sending you two on a mission. An interesting thing about the mission is, I know everything that's going to happen, everything that needs to be said, and when you're going to come back, I know all of that before it happens, and I'm telling you to go. You're going to go, and you're going to find an animal. You're going to find it immediately. You're going to find this donkey and this colt tied up. You'll find them there. They're already pre-tied, waiting for you to pick them up. You see a little allusion to that in Genesis 49.11, uh, when he's talking about Judah. In Genesis 49.11, it says, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, washing his garments in wine and the vesture, his vesture in the blood of grapes. And also, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11 Hear this word from the prophet Isaiah. So, 750 years, give or take, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. And just ponder the thought, at least for a moment. 750 plus years in advance, hang on guys, your salvation comes. What about 50 years later, 100 years later, 150 years later, somebody on earth is going, I don't know if it's true. People start doubting after 750 years, right? You've been saying this for 750 years and he hadn't shown up. Well, don't you worry. Your salvation comes. That's what Isaiah said. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. By the way, the word Hosanna, as I'm sure you already know, means save now. Save now, or could mean save 
indeed. It's a word that was transitioning from Hebrew to Aramaic to Greek. The salvation of the world rode into town on a stinking mule. That's what happened. Humble. Just rode into town. The salvation of the whole world hanging on one man. There's another king, was there not, that was riding in on a donkey one day. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33. The king, David, said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. They connect the dots of a king is coronated on a mule and the dots of your salvation comes and then they match that with Zechariah. This should not be that confusing. You look at Genesis 49, you look at kings where Solomon is coordinated, you look at Isaiah 66 too, and you look at Zechariah, and you connect the dots, as my friend Paul Merrill will always say, you connect the dots, it's not hard to conclude that the Messiah has just rode into town. Zechariah said what? Zechariah said it this way, Rejoice greatly. This will be the greatest day of your life. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Shout aloud. Why would they shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem? Behold, your king is coming. Now, this is Zechariah, but your king is coming. What kind of king is he? He's righteous. And he has salvation. He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is clear identification. Who else is riding into town with all the crowd saying Hosanna mounted on this colt? How many times does this happen a day in Jerusalem? The obvious ought to be able to figure out the Messiah has come. By the way, no war horse. He's in a long ranger on his white horse with his mask. None of that. He's riding on this lowly mule, if you will. No pride, no pomp from the king. Humble, righteous, obedient. The king of the universe riding on a stinking mule. That's the picture. That's what happens. Then we get to verse 3 of Matthew. Protective comfort. He says to these two, he knows they will be questioned. I mean, it's like you leave your car. Nowadays, you got your electric car plugged up to the deal. And you go out there and somebody's unplugging your car. And taking you like, what are you doing? Right? That's the way it happens. And so, it's two mules tied up out here. A mule in the colt of the mule. And somebody's untied them. Hey, where are you going with my stuff? We still hang horse thieves. Not a horse, but you get the picture. They're going to be questioned. Well, he just gives them the password. Is it not a remarkable password? Hey, what are you doing? The Lord needs them. Okay. It's like, how does it work like that? But, but the Lord is sovereign. He's over all of this. And so this owner of the donkey or this colt, he says, he sends them at once. Oh, if the Lord needs them, you can have them. Oh, I want to talk to that man. I just want to have an interview with him. And what was going through his mind? How did he know? Well, I just want to point out to you the incomparable beauty, incomparable beauty of Christ. No one, no one, even to this day, has perfect knowledge like Christ does. He's never guessing. 
He's never trying to figure it out. He never has to read any self-help books to try to figure out how these things work out. He, he just knows because he never loses any of his deity when he is this uh, hypostatic union of flesh and deity come together. Hun truly, 100% both. By the way, no one can cause people to do what these owners did. How he did that in his sovereignty is a puzzle to us. No man exudes the type of confidence about the unknown like Christ did. When you think about something you don't know and you think it might be true, there's always some hesitancy. You're 90% sure, 85% sure, unless you're the meteorologist and you have no idea what you're saying. But Jesus, when he speaks of the unknown, he speaks of it in 100% confidence in every subject. Because he's God in human flesh. Now, in Matthew, verses 4 through 7, look at these observations here. This obser mainly one observation. Prophecy is fulfilled in verses 4 and 5. You see in your Bible, it's kind of block quoted there to let you know it's an Old Testament quote. Um, and we'll look at that. But it's fulfilling the word of the Lord. So now as we look at Zechariah, I told you uh, Isaiah is about 750 years before this event. Well, Zechariah is about 550 years. So 550 years has passed since the prediction of Ze Zechariah was made. And, and when the appointed time arrived, now forgive my language here, this is J.C. Ryle. When the appointed time arrived, the long-promised Messiah did literally ride into Zion on an ass. That's what happened. Because 550 years earlier, that's what the prophet had said would happen. Oh, the necessity of men, us, to believe the Bible. Do you believe the Bible? So then when we read a promise, we say, that's true. I can bank my life upon it. Even if Jesus waits to return to gather his church, even if he waits 550 more years, you can trust it and believe it with your life and bank on it because the word of God has said. Now, profound humility from Christ in this passage. Zechariah, Matthew had said it, Zechariah said it. He identifies this word humble. How, how do you identify a king? How do you identify the king of the land coming to town? What type of uh, things would they do for the president to come into a city? Air Force One, parades, lights, all these things, all these things they do, power, authority. It's not very likely that you see them identified as a person of humility. But that's the way the king is identified here. The king of all of time is noted as being humble. This Greek word for humble, pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Is Jesus important? That's pretty much a freebie for amen. Is Jesus important? But he doesn't act like it. He knows he is. But he chooses a path of humility. I think Christianity could learn from that. So he rides into town on this ass with no self-seeking praise. 
Well, how does he write in? With his heart set on Calvary. I've come here to die. I've not come here for my rights. I've not come here for my way. I've come here to lay my life down that you may live. What a Savior. He rides into the death chamber to substitute his life for sinners. The very one who deserves praise, all the praise, discards the praise and receives the crucifixion. Now, this is notable to me because I know how humanity works. I work the same just like you. We're all human here. And so praise is more dangerous than condemnation, at least for most people. Praise goes to the head. It strikes the ego and makes us proud, gets us off course. And we get enough praise, we we start thinking we're important and the world spins around us. Americans are good at this. Jesus gets all this praise And it does not divert him. In other words, he doesn't fall in love with the praise and bypass the cross. You don't know anybody like this. When people get enough praise, they start giving out autographs. People get enough praise, they start having people gather around them. Jesus gets all this praise. He says, you need to move out of the way because I'm going to that tree and laying my life down. I will not be diverted from what it's going to take to redeem humanity. No one else functions like Christ. Most kings, rulers, leaders are described by the word power. But the king of the universe is described by the word humble. Now, point number three is ovation or praise. This comes from verses 8 through 11. And it also comes from Luke 19, 37 and 38. But exuberant praise is expressed in verses 8 and 9 of Matthew. You can see it there in your text. Verse 8, most of the crowd, they're spreading cloaks, cutting branches. They're going before him. They're shouting. This is pandemonium. Hosanna, son of David. You have to understand there, there's all these expectations, all these imaginations They've formed in their mind. They've created this and they put this on Christ. This is the way it works. And they're all 100% on board and they're all believing. But in their own expectation, in their own imagination, as soon as they find out that he's not going to meet their expectation, they'll discard him like yesterday's paper. Because it's not a real belief. It's just a belief as long as it matches what I want to already believe. But nevertheless, they do praise and exalt him. Matthew 21, 9, we read. Mark 11, those who went before, those who followed were shouting. Trying to, and the text says it. Matthew says shouting. Mark says shouting. When you get to the Gospel of Luke, and he's coming from this Mount of Olives, this whole multitude of disciples are rejoicing and praising and, and he says, with a loud voice, synonym, shouting, all the mighty works they had seen him doing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And you know this from the Gospel of Luke. This is such a scene, and there's so much attention given to Christ. What's going on with these religious guys? Uh-oh, everybody loves Jesus more than me. Jesus, you tell them to be quiet. You know the classic verse. 
If all of these people do not praise me, the rocks themselves will cry out. But I'm getting praise today. What Luke brings us to. The Gospel of John uh, just gives us this other tidbit that a lot of the motivation from this is because everybody knows this guy raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been buried for four days. This draws a crowd. But I want you to make another connection. The other connection is there's these psalms called Hallel Psalms, praise psalms. And so there's several of those in a list. The most significant of this passage is Psalm 118. It is known as a Hallel Psalm. You can take just a brief moment and turn. It's not hard to find the book of Psalm. And you turn there and you look in verse um, chapter 118. Just look at verse 1 and then we'll skip towards the end of the chapter. <coughs> but Hallel Psalms start like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Now, why should we do that? Well, because he's good. Whatever he does is good, so we should give him thanks. And then you'll have this uh, after a lot of these verses. And his steadfast love endures forever. And his steadfast love endures forever. He'll repeat that throughout the passage. But then you get to about verse 25 of Psalm 118. Here's the cry all these hundreds of years in advance. We're looking for a Messiah here. Save us! So you have a save us, you have an Isaiah say your salvation comes, you have a Zacharias say your salvation comes riding on this donkey this fold of the colt. And so this that we prayed for is prophesied that he's going to come. And now in the triumphal entry, these things are happening. Save us, O oh Lord, we pray. O oh Lord, we pray. Give us success. Verse 26 of Psalm 118. Blessed, there's your word, He is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. By the way, the Lord, Jesus, that's riding on that, that, that donkey, the Lord is God. And He has made us. His light to shine upon us. Bind that festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. They should have known He's going to be slaughtered. Why else would you bind Him? You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. And he ends as he begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, these people should have made the connection. They know Psalm 118. They've read this in the synagogue so many times. They should have known it's messianic. They should connect that with Isaiah. They should connect it with Zechariah. Put these things together. And instead of a false expectation, they should have said, Yep, that's the one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The only problem is, is we know he's going to be crucified, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. They should know that from the Old Testament. It's clear as the nose on the front of your face. But somehow, they've been blinded to these great truths, and they've come up with a different interpretation, and so thus they reject him and do not receive him as Savior. At least many of these do not. Verse 10 of Matthew 21. When he entered Jerusalem... Well, the whole city was stirred up. Whole city stirred up. The Greek word here, I think it, I, I may be wrong on this, but I think it's the word where actually we get this idea of seismic, where we get this idea of earthquake. I'm pretty sure that's close in there. To cause a state of commotion, shake, agitate, stir up, set in motion. 
When Jesus entered, it shook the world, if you will. Now, if you want a graphic picture of this, I hate to do this. I'm not much of a golf person, but this is the picture because this is current. So if you saw any news last week, this is how it happens. You get a guy that's about 51 years old, that's about to win his six majors. For some reason, that's a big deal. So literally thousands of people stand on their feet five to six hours to watch a grown man hit a white ball in a hole. The same type of people complain because they sat through a 30-minute sermon on a padded pew. It makes no sense to me. So they stand out there for six hours, and it comes to the point of the 18th hole of pandemonium. If you don't see it, Google it. You know how to do all this stuff. So you, you Google it. What happens as we're walking to the green? The crops, they lose, they lose all bearing, and everybody rushes the golf course. And so the golfers are consumed in the crowd. You can't even see them. Finally, one of them comes out, the guy's got a hold of his shoulder, and six cops are there, and one of them knocks him off, and he makes it to the green, and the whole place is surrounded. All their toes are on the putting green, waiting for this grown man to hit this white ball in this cup where we can lose our minds. That happened. Why would we not understand this? We're not talking about a white ball in a cup. We're talking about a guy who raises dead people. And he's walked into the middle of the city, and it's pandemonium. The whole city is shaken. Everybody's cheering. If Jesus would have said at verse 12, instead of going to the temple and cleansing the thing, if at verse 12 he said, I'm taking over, the crowd would have erupted. They'd have done the wave. They would have been all on board. Let's get our swords and drive all the oppressors away. But he didn't knock the ball in the hole and they're disappointed and they're upset because he didn't win his sixth major right I mean in the comparison of the story and so this bothers him now this one we had this instead of dealing with Rome he went into the temple and cleansed it whoa 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 wait a minute what are you doing it's about like Isaiah why don't you go or Amos why don't you go preach somewhere else those things start shifting there. Well, an expectant rebuke. He does rebuke them when they tell him to silence the crowds. He says, even the rocks will cry out. This is his day for exaltation. He will have it. Verse 11 of Matthew 21, explanation is provided. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 11 of chapter 21. The crowd said, and by the way, give them some credit. This is one of the highest accolades that could be given, at least in the religious context. This is the prophet. Who is this? This is the prophet. You remember Deuteronomy 18, I'm going to raise up a prophet for you, like you among your brothers. I'm going to raise him up. This is him. So they at least understood portions. He's got some things mixed together wrongly here. He is the prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Disciples certainly knew he was a prophet, but all of these things are trying to work through their foggy understanding. The phrase Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee probably connotes surprise that a prophet could come from such an unlikely place. Incomparable one more time about Christ. No one, no one to this day, and you name your person, no one has affected the world 
to the degree that Jesus has. People might have their day and they might have their season, but Jesus has eternal bearing on the world. No one has ever shaken the world like him. No one man has ever shaken people individually like this one. You go into a restaurant somewhere, you have a conversation, somebody brings up Buddha, I doubt that they'll burn the place down. You bring up Jesus in the right context and you might get hit. He still has these types of effects. It still bothers the conscience. As Tony knows, I won't go through that whole story, but he brings up Jesus. His waitress leaves and won't even talk to him anymore. It's because there's still responses when you bring forth the truth of Christ. You see, no one, Jesus is not number one. He's the only one. You only have a number one if there's a number two. There's not a number two. He, he, no one can be compared to Christ. He, he's in a class by himself. There's no one else comparable. Let's wrap this thing up. Now go to John, which is where we're supposed to be, which this is all the same story. But now let's get that last piece of information. We have time to do so. I gave you tonight off anyways. John 12. Verse 12 through 19 is the passage. I'll not read the whole account again. 12 through 15 is the same things we just heard. But 16 through 19 is a little bit of three, at least three pieces of additional information. His disciples did not understand these things. This whole event of him coming into town, all that's impaled in this, they, they're not fully comprehending this yet. Not at first. But when he was glorified, that statement or that phrase undoubtedly points to the cross and the resurrection. When he's glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done by him. They'll get it eventually. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, see, they continue to bear witness. Everybody's talking about this event. Then, verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, well, they heard that he had done that sign. I wasn't making that part up. They heard about the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus, and they went to see Jesus. And then verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, or behold, the, that you are gaining nothing. Behold, look, the world, the world you see it there? Cosmos. The world has gone after him. So this is very, very short, but just to identify what happens as Jesus enters Jerusalem on this great day of his entry. And so here are our groups. First group, disciples. They don't fully comprehend. They're not opposed. They're not arguing against it. They just hadn't put all the pieces together yet. Until after he's glorified. This is all going to come together. They're going to be willing to die for Christ. And many of them will be martyred for Christ. So they're going to get it. At this point, they haven't connected all the dots. But it's coming. At the right time, they'll comprehend all things. They'll be empowered by the Spirit of God. And they'll do great things for the kingdom of God. Okay, that's group number one. The disciples. I don't have it all, but what I have, I'm just going to believe. And they still follow when others don't follow. I doubt seriously that the disciples were yelling, crucify, crucify. Then there's the crowds. This is a substantial crowd. Well, what do we know about them? This is all we know. They've heard 
that Jesus can raise the dead. That'll get you a hearing. People will come for miles for that. So they come to see a man who might do something else. What might he do? He might raise somebody else. He might raise a whole graveyard. I don't know. I heard he gives sight to the blind. I heard he raised a lame man that was by the pool of Bethesda. I heard that this woman had an issue of blood most of her life. And it just dried up when she touched him. I, I just don't want to miss the next event. Okay, so they come. They want to see him. Maybe get his autograph. Don't kid yourself. They're no different than us. Get his autograph. I touched Jesus. I was by him. I remember I met him. He is the public figure at this point. And then we have a third group. We have the Pharisees. They say, behold, the world has gone after him. Now, I could spend a lot of time here just because I like to be argumentative sometimes. Maybe a newsflash for you. I don't know. But the word world does not always mean every individual in the world. Look, you say, well, how can you say that? The Pharisees said the world has gone after him. I very seriously doubt that they were thinking about the Indians in America that haven't been discovered yet. I don't think they were thinking about Chinese people in China or Russians in, 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 in Russia or Germans in Germany. You know what I think they were thinking? About the city. And all of the people of the city, that was their world. What I'm saying to you is sometimes the world just means this area that we're talking about and doesn't apply to every single individual. But these Pharisees make that statement, the world has gone after them. Now, with those three groups, very simply, so what's your response to Christ? Because I think you fit in one of these groups today. Now, you may not express it externally, but it's going on in your heart even this morning. You fit somewhere. Let me ask you question number one. Are you like the disciples? Open to understanding. You may say this morning, I don't understand everything, but I'm willing. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm teachable. I don't know everything there is to know about Jesus, but I believe him. It's a good group to be in. Would you believe him enough to follow him in the baptismal waters? Stand before your church and say, I believe Christ died and was resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven and he's going to return for me someday. I believe him. Would you believe him to that degree? I don't understand the hypostatic union. I don't understand eschatology and soteriology and all these other ologies. I don't get all of that, but I'm open. But I believe Jesus. And I'm not ashamed for the world to know. Would you believe him enough to obey and follow through baptism, pronouncing Christ? Or secondly, are you only hanging around to see what Jesus might do for you? You would hang out in the church for a while and see if your marriage gets better. And if it don't, you're out of here because you thought Jesus could fix it. You, you, you're going to hang around. Maybe you've got an ailment you haven't disclosed and you're going to hang out at church until you're healed. And if you don't get healed, you're out of here because Jesus didn't perform for you. Are you just like the crowds hanging around? And if Jesus meets your expectations, then you're good. But if he doesn't meet your expectations, we're done here. That's not how salvation works. You're all in with Christ, even if he never does anything for you. Because he's already done it. Mary taught you that. 
Mary values Christ because of what he already did, not what he might do. Don't be like this crowd to be a follower while it's cool. You know, in school, they did this. They had to do it through seasons. We're all going to wear these braces, WWJD. Why? It's cool. All the kids have one. And we're going to wear this Christian t-shirt. I'm going to die and follow Jesus. And we're going to wear the Christian t-shirt. Why? Because it's cool. We're going to gather around a flagpole. And we're going we're to honor Jesus on follow the flag day. We're going to lay it on the pole because it's cool. Yeah, what about when it's not cool? What about when people mock you? What about people make fun of you? What about when you get ostracized because you stand for the name of Christ? This crowd's not interested in that. But are you, you say, I don't want to be a part of the crowd. I just want to be all in with Christ. That's the way the disciples were. Our third, are you just opinionated and angry at people who follow Christ? You say, well, what do you mean? Here's how they talk. Oh, you're so righteous. You think you're so righteous and so holy. You're not the Holy Spirit. Oh, you're a goody two-shoes. Oh, you think you're better than us. Oh, judge not lest you be judged. The only verse they have memorized in the whole Bible. This is the way they talk. Judge not lest you be judged. Have you read the rest? I'm not going to give my pearls before swine. You know, it's like, have you... Um, anyway. <laughs> More than one reason I'm not on Facebook. Uh, What about you? What does your voice say in the crowd? Will your voice match your actions? Will your profession set the parameter of your character? Will your voice be heard later blaspheming his name? Or will it be heard from the baptismal water saying, Christ is my Lord? Time is up. What are you going to do? Say, I'm going to do nothing. Then that's what you did. Repent and believe the gospel. Say no to all lesser things. Swallow your self-stinking pride. Run from sin and embrace the Savior by faith. Amen. Brother Jeff is going to come and lead us in song. I'll close this in a verse in just a moment.